Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes a look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. I'm Aaron Gash Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Benjamin Tallis, senior research fellow here at the Council. Ben, last episode, we finally got to start with an in-depth look at Germany's relationship with the UK, your home country, and a place that is close to both of our hearts. Uh, we heard about how the relationship at the top, in particular, between Rishi Sunak and Olaf Scholz, uh, could be better, and we heard about how the types of cooperation particularly in the security and defense sphere, are not nearly as robust as we need them to be to either, A, ensure that Ukraine wins uh, its current uh, conflict with Russia, and B, prepare for a possible Trump presidency in the U.S. and what that would mean uh, for NATO. As we are uh, recording this episode this week, we've just seen that Donald Trump has won the Iowa caucuses. But what does that mean concretely? What really needs to be done on the policy and military level? And that's a question that we think deserves a lot more attention, right? And it's certainly the subject of this episode. That's right, Aaron, and hello, everybody. Well, you said I'm, it's my home country, the UK. Being a ruthless cosmopolitan, I have at least three home countries, and we're here in one, one of the others of them, Germany. A rootless or ruthless cosmopolitan? I'll let you choose there. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> From one ruthless or rootless cosmopolitan to another, there we go. But you're right. This question has become increasingly pertinent as the prospect of a Trump uh, victory hoves into sight. But honestly, even if Biden were to win again, there's a lot of the same issues that Europeans would need to deal with. We need to do more for our own defense. And this is something we've been saying consistently on Berlin Side Out since the beginning of our first season. That means getting the attitude right, but it also means getting the capabilities right. And that's something we're going to talk about with Edward Stringer, who's our guest today. Now, we spoke to Edward back in October, and Edward's a retired air marshal in the UK from the Royal Air Force and was deputy chief of the defense staff in the UK. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to capabilities as well as to strategy. And I direct everyone's attention to a piece that's in our show notes, uh, which is Edward's recent piece with Policy Exchange, appraising the annual lecture by the British chief of the defense staff, Admiral Tony Radekin. Some of the things that Edward points to there um, really complement the discussion we had with him in October about the procurement difficulties that the UK is having, but which are also replicated in their own particular way, procurement difficulties with German characteristics here in Germany. The other thing that Edward points to really well is that we haven't kicked our military industrial complex, our economy into gear for actually producing the kind of depth and breadth of kit and ammunition that we would need to be properly prepared for any kind of conflict and indeed to have the kind of kit that would allow us to credibly deter our enemies and prevent that conflict from happening and that's the key link that a lot of people still aren't making so whether it's buying drones buying tanks producing things in the kind of numbers where they're semi-disposable as edward calls them which is a lesson we should be learning from ukraine or whether it's big production uh, big ticket production and procurement of naval ships for example we have a long long way to go just one uh, concrete example here the eu's efforts to procure 
are shells for Ukraine, the famous million shells, which many people think it's not on target to meet that million by March 2024, we've not even really started to increase our production efforts. The US, on the other hand, has belatedly invested in new factories, but even that struggles. It's by 2028 it will be able to make shells at the rate that Ukraine consumes them now. Let that sink in for a moment. Even our million shells would be consumed extremely quickly in Ukraine. So this indicates that the scale of the challenge that we face, and at the moment it seems like we haven't got the message right. We've not had that wake-up call, or at least if we've had it, we've not taken it seriously. No, I don't think we have. And that, I think, was made clear, uh, particularly this week, with the Iowa caucus and Donald Trump having won it. And suddenly we have uh, various European politicians, including uh, Norbert Rutgen, one of the top experts within the Christian Democrats here in Germany, warning that um, Germany and Europe had done too little to prepare for the possibility that there could be another Trump presidency. But the Belgian prime minister actually also issued a similar warning uh, as well after uh, Trump victory, that we weren't uh, nearly prepared for the possibility of of everything we would need to do to take more responsibility for our security. And uh, we have recently uh, also seen an interview that our friend Oliver Moody, who's been on this podcast uh, before, uh, talking about the Baltic, had uh, with uh, Kaya Kallis, the Estonian Prime Minister. And uh, something that struck me uh, that Kallis said, a couple of things. First of all, um, she basically said, forget 2%, 2.5% is really a more realistic figure in terms of what would be necessary in ter- of spending on defense to actually have the capability of deterring Russia. The other, um, the other thing that's interesting that she said uh, is she gave the figure of three years uh, the is as little as three years in terms of the amount of time uh, that we as Europeans actually have to be able to arm ourselves appropriately to deter Russia. And that uh, goes against uh, some expert uh, estimates here in Germany, where it could be uh, up to 10 years that we apparently have. Uh, so wide differences, but it, but again, um, Kaya Kallis being on a NATO frontline state absolutely, um, you know, sees the threat quite, uh, quite closely there, I would think. That's right. And of course, if we're prepared for three years, as well as we can, we're certainly prepared for six to 10 years. And so it seems to most of us here, at least, that this is an issue that has such stake, that has such potential consequence, that it's worth erring on the side of caution on this one, and thus taking a rapid approach to rearming ourselves in order to prepare, and indeed, particularly to prevent any kind of future conflict from happening. The number that Kaya Kalas mentioned, 2.5%, is certainly better than 2%, but I think still um, a lot of analysts would say that's too low to get the kind of kit and ammunition that we need to seriously equip ourselves to make sure that Russia, Vladimir Putin, takes a look at us and thinks, not today. And that's a point that Edward Stringer makes in his article as well. He's saying it's important to appear as though you're strong. And that kind of signaling, this is a point that's coming out of a lot of UK defence analysts at the moment, because we heard the British Defence Secretary Grant Shapps talking about the need to be ready for war, the the possibility of the UK being involved in a, a shooting war with a peer competitor within five years. If that were really Shapps' assessment, we'd be seeing a lot more statements about what is being procured. So, for example, it was uh, Francis Chusa, the defense analyst, who said, if we say publicly we've sent 8,000 N-laws to Ukraine, where's the statement saying, but we've procured 12,000 more, so don't even think about it? 
where's the doubling down on the drone program, which Edward mentions as well? I mean, the UK has tied itself up in knots, investing what he says you know, t- in tens of drones that cost tens of millions each, whereas instead we should be thinking about tens of thousands of semi-disposable drones that can actually be lost in, in battle because things wear out during conflict, things uh, need replacing, and things get destroyed. That's the nature of war. But it's not the nature of the wars that we've been fighting in the last few years. So that shift in mindset, uh, in military mindset, as well as societal mindset and economic readiness, all of which must be driven by government, has not happened yet to the extent we need it to. And we actually saw an example of this even this week in Sweden, where the government uh, essentially said, uh, "This, you know, we need to be prepared for the possibility that we could actually be engaged in a war here in a not too dis- in the not too distant future." That, of course, provoked uh, a lot of um, public reaction, very alarmed public reaction. Uh, but at the same time, I would al- also say this is precisely what deterrence is for: um, is to uh, be so strong that you don't necessarily have to worry about this. But we've underinvested for so long that, as you say, um, we're starting to get um, estimates that are higher than the than the 2% that was originally quoted, 2.5%, and even, as you say, that some analysts are saying um, that even that figure that Callas mentions is perhaps too low. Absolutely. And of course, Defence Minister Boris Pistorius here in Germany said Germany needs to be kriegstüchtig. It needs right. to be actually uh, ready to fight a war. Now, this did cause some alarm here. And good would be my reaction to that. We should be alarmed at this prospect. It's okay to be alarmed as long as you do something about it, as long as you use that alarm to wake up. You don't just panic. But this is about talking to our citizens as if they were adults, something we've advocated from the very beginning of this show. And the somewhat hysterical reaction to that comment from Pistorius amidst much of the German commentariat and some of the public didn't bode well. We need more of that talk, not less, if we're going to generate the political momentum to manage that threat rather than sleepwalk into it. Talking about the defence industrial base, one recent controversial decision here has been the reversal of the German government's uh, previous prohibition on uh, the UK exporting Eurofighter Typhoon, 4.5 generation fighter aircraft, to Saudi Arabia, the third tranche of a long-standing deal. Now that was blocked here last summer by the Greens uh, to great fanfare from some of their um, MPs and supporters who thought this was really a um, striking a blow for a values-based foreign policy and saying we shouldn't sell powerful fighter aircraft to a Saudi regime that was responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi that has uh, consistently opposed liberal values and that shows no real signs of uh, being a good contributor to our values or our security. But nonetheless, this decision has now been reversed. Now, some here in Berlin are saying that's a very sensible move. It righted a, a wrong decision from before. There's widespread celebration of this in the UK because it's seen to help save that defense industrial base, to save the the production capacity for aircraft that would help in future to uh, produce the sixth generation Tempest aircraft that is being talked about and to preserve the kind of capacity that the UK also needs to help Ukraine. Some of that strikes me as a bit of a stretch, those arguments, but there are very good experts who do make them. So this is a, a case where obviously things are not so simple where we have to balance uh, or consider the role that values in our foreign policy place and what best serves them. It's a matter of time that will tell whether this is a right decision or not. 
but it's certainly something that plays into the discussions around how we support a vibrant defense industry, but also what we do with it. My own take on that is that actually the, the Eurofighter Typhoon uh, is the kind of aircraft we should be looking to export more to allies, and that it's the kind of aircraft that could potentially form the backbone of a future Ukrainian air force if we were think serious about supporting them in the long term. Moreover, by doing so, it would provide a European alternative that would help support European defense rather than having to rely on the US for all of our uh, fighter aircraft and fast jets. Which is also precisely a conversation we need to have. And we got into that a little bit with uh, Edward, uh, getting into our common security challenges as both Germany and the UK in particular, two countries that, if the will is there, really can act together to create European security. The key, of course, is that they want to do so. Uh, But as we hear from Edward, that's going to take work. Let's listen in. Schöner guten Morgen from Berlin. We are delighted to be joined today on Berlin Side Out by uh, retired Air Marshal Edward Stringer, um, who served as the Assistant Chief of the Defence Staff in the UK and is renowned as a military expert, uh, commenting on military affairs in public as well as providing advice to senior figures in the military and business worlds. Edward, welcome to Berlin. Great that you're here with us. Thank you so much for joining us and a big welcome to both Berlin uh, and to Berlin Side Out. Uh, Now, despite Brexit having taken the UK out of the EU, a forum and family that Germany does consider to be absolutely integral for its diplomatic and political interests, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has certainly shown, I think, that the UK uh, remains a very critical partner for Germany, uh, not exclusively on, but particularly on security issues. Uh, And that's uh, not likely to change anytime soon. I think we've seen that evidence quite clearly um, since February 2022. Uh, What kind of role do you think Germany and the UK uh, together can or should have in the Atlantic Alliance? It's a really interesting question because I uh, it has to be placed into context. So rather than just come back with a here's a book answer and answer question two, um, I'd rather roll that back slightly um, because if you look at the, the the history of all the mini alliances that the UK has gone for recently, starting perhaps with the CGEF, the Combined Joint Expeditionary Force with the French. Certainly of its time, when all commentators would talk about, well, those are the two biggest militaries. But what they were really saying was those are, those are the two P5 nations that are prepared to go and intervene in the world. And of course, that harks back to the thinking of our Strategic Defence Review in 97-98, which is all about really being a force for good. You know, Tony Blair uh, uh, thinking, and I'm, I'm not criticising this, in that sort of unipolar moment, what are your armed forces for? Well, they're to stop Rwanda happening again, they're to stop Srebrenica. And for probably political as, as, and some social reasons, who are the powers in Europe willing to send boats overseas to sort stuff out? So the CGF seemed to have a sense to it. And uh, really, though, it became us helping the French in the ECOWAS region. Um, move forward only a couple of years... And then you have the Joint Expeditionary Force, which had a lot of, if I may speak candidly, uh, I remember having to write a glossy uh, to send it round the uh, round the British military because a lot of the British military on the front line were going, "Why, why are we in an alliance with Estonia? We know what what do they do?" And I think mentally, most uh, British military folk are. We're thinking C. Jeff thinking, if you know what I mean. We are we're here to do for the Falklands. We're here to do Gulf War One. That's what we do. It makes sense to ally with a with a big expeditionary power like like uh, like France. But then the context changes, and here we are now facing you know the acute military threat of Russia, uh, and I don't think that glossy 
would be needed anymore. It's now uh, manifestly apparent why uh, Estonia matters. Uh, and uh, even the detail of it suddenly, oh, actually 2007, big cyber attack, really understanding resilience, actually they are on the front line. And now, of course, we've had rotation of rotation after rotation of 1,000 troops each time, roughly, uh, going through TAPA and, and, and come back. So now there's a sense of mission with per- persistent mission, if you like, with I've just picked on Estonia because of enhanced forward presence. Whereas there was never a sense of mission with French and the CGF, other than those who were in the expeditionary headquarters and doing exercises, because it was a contingent readiness force. And so that leads me into your question about Germany. As that changes, then you know, the relationship with Germany changes, where I suppose those with long memories would remember British Army on the Rhine, RAF Germany, uh, that, that's what the relationship is. And then there's, well, the Germans don't tend to have that expeditionary mindset. The, the language of X years ago, 10, 15 years ago, was are these powers in Europe post-military societies now? Why would we want to be allied with a post-military society? Suddenly what Russia's done, the other pressures in the world have, I think, you know, the return of that dreadful phrase, the hostile state actor, but real persistent state-on-state competition has completely altered the context again. And now I think there is a sense of mission and it's probably more one of generating that meaningful defence industrial base that underpins all military power. So once again, it's not thinking through sending a few boats from a couple of harbours and people waving flags and we're going on an expeditionary operation with the Germans. It's actually much more important than that. It's do we have national armament directors who can sit down together and work out these, what are still two big powers in Europe, now with a sense of purpose and understanding of where the pressures are coming from, how should they work together better to underpin, undergird the security of the continent? Very different question to, can we go on an expedition with you to sort out someone's problem somewhere around the world? Absolutely right. And this sense of common purpose is sometimes questioned here in Germany, it must be said. And Germany is very much looking for a role, which I think relates to that search for that common purpose. For the Brits, it was manifestly clear that the Russian challenge had to be met. And the UK became the framework nation and Estonia, surprising the force there. We know Canada in, in Latvia does that and Germany and Lithuania. But more broadly, um, Germany trying to find its way in terms of how it can really contribute is a key question at the moment. Is that through providing the large capable ground force at the heart of NATO? Well, there doesn't seem to be willingness to do that. There doesn't seem to be willingness to spend the money to do that. Meanwhile, Poland next door is building up massive ground capabilities. So from your perspective, what would Germany's ideal role be? And to add to that, from what you've just been saying, uh, is it really a question of comparative advantage or prioritization? So if if the military industrial base, um, of which Germany has a very strong industrial base, <laughs> produces leopard tanks, all kinds of things, uh, is that sort of a good place to be focusing on um, in terms of comparative advantage, something that uh, it can bring to the team uh, in a way that uh, has an edge. I'm almost Ricardo-esque in my appreciation here of a comparative advantage. So I think we, uh, we really ought to look at it a lot more. And, and it really is at the heart of what you're thinking about when you're talking about deliberately constructing a team. Because if you want to, to generate efficiencies, uh, then you really should be saying, look, what, what you do is that and you do it really well. So why don't you concentrate on that? That will, there'll always be some hedging in that. 
no one's going to, no sovereign power is going to rip out, or very few would rip out a whole chunk of their defences and rely totally on someone else doing it. But we accept comparative advantage. Brits now, I'll bring it back to Germany in a, in a second. Of course we accept it. No one that I know of is suggesting that you know, the Polish Navy should step up and play its part in protecting the Western approaches. Though, of course, uh, any Polish ships would be welcome in a, um, a surface action group or whatever, and a, 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 a flotilla. So why do we feel we've got to take 10% of, say, land power on the eastern Polish border Really, because these yeah, vestigial, the vestigial thinking of British Army on the Rhine is is still there. But but just look at the plans. I mean, I hate to bang on about this, and British Army friends who might be listening in will probably think I'm taking a pop. But really, really, I'm not. But if we're only going to buy 148 tanks, and the Poles have already got 2,000, this is a comparative disadvantage. You know, in many ways, and suddenly trying to insert a fillet of that 148 in the line between 2,000 Polish tanks and maybe a thousand odd German, whatever, wherever the German army ends up, the cost of friction of trying to integrate that small element would outweigh, I think, any benefit. Just let, let me follow up on that for a second, because exactly this is interesting to see then what is Britain's edge before we get on to what Germany's comparative advantage is. What then is Britain providing? Yeah, well, that's actually a good way of getting into what Germany provides. Well, excellent questioning. I see where this is all going now. <laughs> um, uh, we have fantastic intelligence agencies. You know, we sit there at that funny little island off the northwest corner. I talked about you know the, the western approaches, approaches to the high north, uh, um, Ice and Ferries, UK Gap, all those things that um, were have come back into um, our consciousness from the Cold War and for good reason. So the UK's quite good, I think, at being able to corral the understanding around those northern nations, hence the Jeff. If you are looking at all the operational problems that pertain in, in that broader theatre, whether it's Kaliningrad, then actually a maritime power, air power, intelligence power, cyber power, it, you know, it's just what you need to keep everything flowing. We spoke at your conference yesterday, did we not, about undersea cables and what have you. And of course, those and all the interconnectors and everything else that links this archipelago in northern northern Europe around the Atlantic, um, down through the North Sea, the Baltic, um, all of this amazing infrastructure of stuff that connects all our societies and keeps, um, and, and, and keeps us all going. All that needs knitting together. And the UK is in a, in a good position to do it. An element of that is persistently setting... The theatre, on a very simple level, NATO needs to get through to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania to reinforce them. Therefore, all of those approaches and all the flows in all our dimensions from cyber to the railway all need protecting, all need coordinating, which is where I think the Jeff has found its niche. And interestingly, probably driven more by the smaller countries in the team, not the UK for the reasons I said at the start. Most UK people are still thinking, here's a 10-man force for an expeditionary op we'll corral together. And actually the Jeff Nation's thinking, no, it's nice to have a nuclear P5 power to set the theatre. We feel better placed knowing that, that that is behind us. So if that's true for the UK, then what would mutatis mutandis the German position be? There's a lot of railways run through Germany. I'm going to speak to someone like General Ben Hodges about you know, the difficulty he had in getting tanks on low on, transporters. On right? We had Ben on the yeah. show actually yeah. three weeks oh, ago talking about yeah. exactly this. And he, he, did. he made the point that at the moment German rail infrastructure can only move one and a half armoured brigades when we'd need something like 15 to actually be moved at once. And he did mention that that would be something that would immediately improve the team if, uh, if even that infrastructure would be uh, appropriately um, maintained and upgraded. Back to <clears throat> where I started, where I sort of deliberately started with a mindset. 
talk about railways around the UK military? Well, there are one or two people who remember this, and yeah, they're they're in the corner. Mark Looney, whenever you know, oh god, it's a single issue Looney who remembers the or seventeen Port Maritime or something like that. I seem to remember. Be- Beatings acts ran through the military too, did it? Well, well, we used to have we used to be able to do all of There were staff tables for all that sort of thing. It's all considered a bit old hat, but it's not old hat. And what Ukraine has reminded us is, yeah, it's corny to say about you know, logistics and real generals talk about logistics, but behind that there are all these all these elements of being a genuine military power, which are all really about how you mobilise the full socio-economic base. And if you can't do that, then actually all you've got is a display force to conduct, you know, a phrase of the moment, a special military operation. <laughs> which is why I've always <laughs> laughed, you know, when, it, when Putin talks about it, because I think well, actually the, the paradigm, I would argue, in the UK is close to being broken, because actually what we can do is conduct special military operations as long as no one makes them too demanding or they last too long or they or they require us to pull on that industrial base right. too much. And that's the grand strategy element of this, that we're trying to really re-engineer a way of thinking about that for liberal democracies to say how do we marshal all the different sources of power that we have in a coherent direction, which requires that objective to be set and then you need the strategy to, to go with it. But you did also mention one crucial thing, that the UK is a nuclear power as well. So it has this full spectrum capability which it's it's come to an interesting point recently in the German debate um, because of the repeated statement that Germany is afraid of escalation and that delivering more weapons of higher quality um, step change upgrades that we've seen from the UK. So when the UK first was one of the first to pledge main battle tanks, when the UK sent Storm Shadow, this was real leadership in terms of pushing forward the quality of what was supplied to Ukraine. Germany's been very hesitant to do that. And every single time, I mean, Aaron, it's like Groundhog Day here, we hear the same excuses coming out. And repeatedly, we hear that Germany is afraid of escalating by doing this, which seems to misunderstand the mechanics of deterrence, but also rather suggests that the Germans don't think the UK nuclear deterrent covers them. And well, and we also see this, for example, in Olaf Scholz's insistence uh, in the whole odyssey of sending uh, leopard tanks that he did not uh, want to send those until um, there obviously was um, Abrams tanks from the US that were also being sent. And he used the phrase, keine Alleingänge, no going it alone. And we've uh, discussed uh, before on this podcast that going it alone really meant uh, not without the U.S., uh, because I think that we were all sitting there basically saying, well, there are other nuclear <laughs> powers within this alliance that are not the U.S., so why is it that we are uh, so obsessed, for example, with a guarantee from the U.S.? So could you perhaps talk us through the role of the U.K.'s nuclear weapons for allies? Well, that's a podcast on its own, isn't it, or a series, really? I mean, genuinely. <laughs> well, we'll have you back for that. Well, the U.K. does offer its deterrent up to NATO. French don't. Uh, I, we don't make enough of it. I've written on this in the past. You know, um, publications are available. Search online. I think I wrote They'll one called. Be in our show notes. That's... There you go. Great Britain is a strangely reluctant nuclear power. And having just mentioned um, the French, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, for the French, it's pivotal. Um, as an ex-director of Defence Academy, of course, I took an interest in you know, international students in every course, and that's reciprocated. On the French equivalent of the High Command Staff Course, and indeed the Royal College of Defence Studies, they sort of merge them with a thing called Shem. Uh, day one, they go to the French nuclear proving ground, I think, or it's the, the, the sort of centre of the French nuclear effort. Um, and all senior French officers are reminded that French power stems from being a nuclear power, and then the military bit follows. The In the UK, we almost don't mention it. it it's a political 
thing which the military operate you know, on behalf of the government. And so there are some, typically, for obvious reasons, uh, submariners, Royal Navy officers who spent a long time on submarines and therefore a long time delivering the continuous at-sea deterrent, which they do very well. Uh, and so they, they become n- nuclear experts. But otherwise, it's almost a sort of civil service policy wonk niche. And the, the, the military is almost deliberately excluded from, from that. In fact, I ended up stepping in and doing a two-star nuclear policy job when I was, as you mentioned, ACDS Assistant Chief of Defence Staff for Operations because there had been a two-star post doing nuclear and related matters and it, and, and it was got rid of as a, as a savings measure, would you believe? That's, un- that's remarkable. It was very good for me because it was absolutely fascinating. But um, And linked, actually, if you think about it, it, it also linked the nuclear... Um, operation more closely then to the routine of military operations uh, in, 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 head of, in head office. Because otherwise it could be the, the thing that is obviously everything about it is starts a secret and then gets more secret uh, and is all behind that green base door and, pe- and, and, and people aren't allowed in. The trouble is, the assumption behind it, if you, if you look at our revealed, you know, revealed preference is a great concept, what, what, what's revealed? Well, what's revealed is we think because we've got a deterrent, we've taken the entire nuclear question off the board in toto. So the deterrent works, and therefore we can get on and just think about conventional operations, link that to where I started. We're an expeditionary force, therefore we train people to, here's a military problem, come up with a brilliant sort of can-I moment. Um, Have your couple of weeks or months of manoeuvring around, win, come home. It's all very cosy, and it doesn't represent the world that we're in at the moment. I remember um, uh, pointing out in one paper that you know, did go go to the chiefs that um, if we weren't educating, really, let alone training our senior commanders, who I pointed out because of the Jeff would now be the framework nation, and it would have been the commander of the standing joint headquarters, which is the Jeff's operational headquarters, could be sat just across the border from a Russian commander who does have a doctrine for nuclear escalation, for ramping things up. So what, our commander, how have we educated him or her to deal with this? And there was a lot of shuffling of hands and looking at feet. I think that is changing, and I think Ukraine will accelerate that. But I only introduce it to show that I I think there needed to be um, a revisiting of our entire thinking about nuclear. I I talked about the French, but also strategic command in in the US, you know, you've got a whole command there that is looking after their nuclear triad. And when I was associated with it, it had space and cyber as well. So these global, this ability to ramp up escalation in several domains and, and a whole body of staff officers who'd grown up and trained and, and, and were steeped in the whole ideas of escalation and de-escalation escalation dominance we the brits need to get back into that thinking a bit more than we yeah, do at the so moment you, I mean, you say get back into it and you started your career in the raf as flying jaguars which one of the roles the jaguar had was as partly a nuclear delivery vehicle when you started out your career was that thinking prevalent about thinking through the nuclear aspects of things i didn't actually because i wasn't based in raf germany but yes i joined a nuclear air force and it was in your consciousness from, from you know, the word go. So that is something that's been lost since the end of the Cold War and needs to be recovered. Yes, and I think what's, uh, because you did the tactical element of it and took it incredibly seriously, you know, there were the X times a year assessments, which 
had a 100% uh, requirement to pass. Um, uh, and you lived with it. But what that meant was, if you became one of those Air Force commanders who, um, say, you know, sat in Bortreley, um, Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, where the, where the V-Force was, um, you were steeped in this just as today the Royal Navy Samariners are. Um, and I, I'm going way off piste here, but you know, I've argued elsewhere that losing that those nuclear elements and the rate, the, 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 the strategic considerations that came with <clears throat> running, say, the V bombers, the Vulcan force that could strike Moscow and come back, shrunk the air force into just thinking about air land battle. And once again, we're back into just the tactics of manoeuvre warfare, all quite short range, all, all, all quite tactically focused. And yeah, it's a different mentality and a different mindset. It all changes quite slowly, doesn't it? You don't notice it. But when I do think back to when I joined University Cadet 82, full-time 85, yeah, the Air Force did have very much a different, a different feel about it then. Right. I mean, this is something we've talked on the show quite a bit, Aaron, um, about how Germany lost its Cold War mindset and the myth that Germany became pacifist after 1945 was just that, a myth. I mean, half a million men under arms, 5,000 main battle tanks, a frontline state and acted like it. Selective memory, Selective as we memory talk about. Culture, right? yeah. This is it. Um, but this is what we... Exactly. Very interesting to hear that applies to the UK to some extent as well because rhetorically, the UK is still out there pushing boundaries. I mean, global Britain rhetoric without exactly what you said, the global military or global nuclear thinking that could really back that up. Um, just quickly before we come on to the Jeff, uh, can I ask you about those British military capabilities? We know that um, the UK has shown great leadership on supplying Ukraine, but isn't it running up against the limits of its capabilities now? As this is one uh, chatty podcast, I will risk because it can be edited out uh, the rhododendron analogy, which starts with the question, how do you get a perfect uh, medium-sized rhododendron bush? And the answer is you don't start with a big rhododendron bush because if you are to hack it back down to the size, all you can do is start the periphery and you remove all the things that you want a rhododendron bush for, the flowers and those lovely green glossy leaves, and you end up with a load of gnarly branches and some sticky bits at the outside and a huge root structure that's no longer necessary. Uh, and if you were to pick it up and weigh it, it would probably weigh about 80 to 90% of the thing you started with and you haven't got any of the the foliage, the front line, which is the bit you pay for. Uh, and that, I think, to some extent, is what's happened with the UK military. If you started with a very small rhododendron bush and sort of hothoused it, like, say, the Australians have, um, it would grow quite quickly. You would have a lot of that foliage stuff. You might be taking a little bit of risk that the roots might not be able to uh, carry the top heaviness of it. But nevertheless, you'd end up with quite quite an efficient little structure. Um, and I think that's the, that that is the problem. It, the the UK military's position works, and I think this has probably underpinned a lot of the. Uh, most instinctive thinking is, but you might need those roots if you really need to grow again in wartime. So you can justify that. And of course, against what's happening at the moment with Russia and China, well, that's certainly, a, a, I think, a valid case to make, but you've then got to make it. Um, and, okay, so how are you going to grow that back then? How are you now suddenly going to take those roots and make and grow back to that big 1945 glossy military rhododendron bush which is in the back of all British military officers minds because that was the sort of heroic moment 
Um, you need a defence industrial base, you need a training machine, you need this, that and the other. And you need the money, money behind it. At the moment, of course, they, without stretching this metaphor way beyond what it all, <laughs> you've still got to water those roots a heck of a lot. You know, we've spoken in the past about, I think you've mentioned in the past, but, but are the internal contradictions coming to the to the fore now and, and it's not been funded? It still chews through £50 billion a year. I think you'll find a figure... Cypri will probably say something like 52 billion, they might even say 60, um, when you take pensions and everything else. So there's a lot of money goes into UK defence, but then we've discussed some of the numbers already, we're not going to hack through it now, but 148 tanks at the end of... I tried to go back and look at when did the programme for our new Challenger 3 start. You can't really say... Because so many programs have morphed into the next, have morphed into the next, have never delivered but have adapted, that you can either say it started 25 years before it will deliver or, or 17. Well, that's a lot of time, and that's choose through. Just think of the salaries. You've got tens, if not hundreds, hundreds of people been involved in that program, the financial reprofiling, the this, that, and the other. I and mean, just look at the, to look at something pop of the army, the, 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 the figures from the RS Protector program of, We've just seen that that's um, gone up by another 300 million or something. It's around that figure. Right. Me, of course, those, that money spent on salaries and pensions isn't going to deter the Russians. It's not, and this is something we say often in Germany as well, problematic procurement process, paying the pensions of the old East German army officers all gets included in that spending number, but it doesn't give you the bang you need for your buck, really. It's not, yeah. An accounting fix isn't going to deter the Russians. This is, again, where we think allies can help each other because they have similar problems. I mean, German military procurement is a very particularly German mess, um, but also UK procurement. I mean, we won't mention Ajax. We won't <laughs> mention <laughs> the, the dreaded word in British military circles. Um, how, how can we cut the Gordian knot there a little bit, and how can allies help each other to do better in that? If you knew how to um, cut that particular Gordian knot, then you would now be a very, very rich and much fated individual in the UK. How many defence reviews have we had? I mean, when people talk, talk about procurement, they now talk about the number of defence reviews and how they've all come to roughly the same conclusions and they don't get anywhere. So, it, it, yeah, it does need slicing through rather than rather than tinkering with. I think, therefore, you have to fundamentally alter the incentives. And I, I think I can answer that with the, you know, the, the emerging theme of this podcast. Go back to what I, where I started, SDR, Force for Good, Contingent Readiness, all of that. It, essentially, therefore the British military is constructed around a sense of being, not a sense of doing. And when you have a sense of doing, then you know what has to be done. If you have a sense of being, well, we just have to be, we're a, we have to posture and be ready for anything, then you can write any number of specifications against any number of possible contingencies. And so the incentives there are always to be as shiny and as top of the range uh, as you can be. But essentially, the services will try and be the best that they can be within their, their their view of the world. This despite the fact that our declaratory position is when we go to war, we'll go to war as fully integrated five domains. How that happens when you've got three services, in fact, four flat with strategic command, four financial centres, all allowed really to an extent to develop themselves in isolation. It doesn't seem a good way of getting getting to integration from the off. So how would you cut through it? Uh, well, I would I would spin the incentives and the two things I've been talking a lot about the last um, couple of years and when I was in was that you 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 need a proper military strategic headquarters. Technically, 
if you go into the website, the Ministry of Defence will say, amongst its functions, it is the Military Strategic Headquarters. Uh, you've got to do more than just say it and then run a standard Department of State. And why would that be important? Because it would actually go halfway to pushing you to where you know, Estonia is because their military is absolutely for doing. They know what it's there for. Yeah. You know, speak to you know, a good friend in London, the Estonian ambassador, a diplomat, a man who's you know, done a lot in trade, but even he can say, Martin, the chief of defence staff, his three big things he does, the three missions he has are these, bang, bang, bang. And those are, you know, it's quite an interesting way of you know, looking at it. One is to make sure that all the Estonian military, so across all the services, is ready to defeat a Russian, as a machine Russian invasion, <clears throat> tonight, tomorrow, you know, immediately. Um, the second is to mobilise across society. So there's the point we talked about, you know, coming to the fore. And the third is to make sure you can maximise the contribution from allies. Right. So they set out with their chief to actually bind themselves into others, but therefore others into them. Now, there's a real sense of mission. So if you're the Estonian chief of defence, you know exactly what, you know, what you're there to do. And you're not then, with a limited budget, going to buy lots of nice-to-haves against a just-in-case. You end up with a more efficient procurement system, I would argue. Very last question on this. There's a, a rumour doing the rounds in Berlin that Germany wants to join the Tempest programme, which would either mean um, combining it with FCAS, probably, or scrapping FCAS. Uh, from the British perspective, would it be a good thing if Germany joined Tempest, which is the you know, f uh, the next generation fighter aircraft for non-military folk listening. That's a big political question, isn't it? Um, because it all comes down to defence industrial base and and, and, and what have you. Um, I, I struggle a bit to work out why we, we make such a meal of these big aircraft collaborations when someone like a much smaller country like Sweden with a very, very competent defence business you know, with Saab at the can produce something like the Gripen with, yeah, um, cooperation with other, 30% like of the Gripen comes from the UK and, and, and UK companies. But nevertheless, it's a very effective aeroplane you know, produced in-house. Um, it's almost a rhododendron bush thing here. We make, we make such a thing of creating these vast international groupings that they consume hundreds of, Hundreds of millions yeah, before you before, you, fail, before right, you've done it, done you've done anything. It will come down to considerations of where it leaves each country's high tech industrial base. Remember the things like the Integrated Review in the UK and Germany's just published, as you know, you know some more about it than I have. The National Security Strategy. Actually, you read those; it's all about <clears throat> the science and technology competition with China. So you need, you do need an aviation and the next generation of combat aircraft, whether they're manned or unmanned. Certainly, they're unmanned. <clears throat> is therefore uh, you know, at the cutting edge of being a leading science and economic power. So uh, there are more complicated questions than which aircraft does your Air Force want and will that, will, will, will that one do. But the fundamental principles, I think, from what's come out of you know, this discussion, we should be standardising more. Mm. We shouldn't have a NATO that's got 10 types of main battle tank, this and the other, all have their own ways of going on a, on a low load or on a railway. So in principle, you, you could see how it, would, how it could come together. I don't think the world would fall apart if we ended up with, with, with two different programmes at that level. And there might therefore be some, uh, some resilience in uh, if you put all your eggs in one basket. Of course, you can then end up with problems as well.
you were talking earlier about how the UK doesn't necessarily always make enough of its nuclear deterrent uh, in particular. And I think that this might become a little bit of a relevant question if we uh, have a big German fear come true next year, which is uh, Trump in the White House or a Trump-like figure. Um, because there are uh, more than one, there is more than one person in that particular race who kind of espouses this uh, more isolationist view and not being as invested in, in European security. If the rubber meets the road on that one, uh, how do you think the UK, France, and Germany should address uh, something like that in terms of uh, what that will mean for European security? There's quite a lot of sort of sensational speculation going on around what would um, a, a second Trump presidency look like. So let's forget all the number of hurdles that have got to be, the number of decisions that have all got to go one way to get to that position. So that it's not a given, but let's accept it, uh, that it does happen. If you go back and look at the last Trump presidency, in fact, the number of Americans in Europe, American service people in Europe went up, uh, not down, despite despite the rhetoric. There is always that, I'm a big fan of the deep state, there are always those other linkages that come into play and certainly within the American system. Yes, I know people say, but Trump 2.0 is going to be much better prepared. It's not going to be the chaotic element. It's this, this that and the other. But if you speak to you know, a lot of, uh, across the spectrum of American political opinion, uh, there are those, certainly those in the, who are no fans of Trump who will still turn around and say, but we do spend a lot on NATO and you don't. So it is a legitimate question to look at all those major you know, e economic powers and say, you know, where are you on percentage of GDP? Can, you, know, you are actually a very wealthy nation, so GDP and GDP per capita. Uh, so that is, um, that is bound to come to the fore. My view is NATO should be able to pick up a lot more of the defence of Europe. And you just got to look at the, the numbers, and I haven't run them for, um, for a few months, and you know, the rates of exchange questions, but you know, roughly Ukraine's annual defence budget, sterling equivalent is about £4 billion sterling. That, that was its baseline budget from which it constructed the force that it has at the moment. Euro NATOs, so not with the US in, was was running before Zeitenwender and other bits and other pledges at about 400 million so 100 times Ukraine's and Russia's is 66 and then when you th threw in the American budget which is is of course not directed solely at Europe but nevertheless um if you just look at the NATO powers it's 1.2 trillion go and ask an actuary and say so there's those Russian armed forces that's 66 billion is worth over there um is he going to say you're a little underinsured at 1.2 trillion I have argued for a while that I think the way to for the, Europe to deal with with that American question which predates Trump every American president has made these points just haven't been as forceful or you know as aggressive about it as as, as as Trump was is to take take some of that slack and say yeah there are there are global pressures now China is a much more significant competitor than even the Soviet Union ever was. Take your place on the team, essentially. Right, and this is it. I mean, if something we often comparative advantage, is comparative advantage, but also, if the German rhetoric about this fear of being abandoned by the US, who are their ultimate security guarantor, was really genuine, then we would presumably be seeing a massive, massive rearmament program in Germany as insurance against that. We're not seeing that. Um, so the question is, is this mainly used for political posturing, which my feeling is certainly it is. Um, 
But nonetheless, it doesn't address those underlying questions you made. And the big question behind this is 400 billion. How do we get so little for so much? It's, I also would argue as well that <laughs> if we were, uh, if that sort of was a legitimate German fear, that we might also see a little bit more uh, engagement as well with the UK as well, as in addition to uh, massive German rearmament, which uh, perhaps we are not seeing perhaps to the level that we should. So there is a huge amount in that. I mean, I, I came to Berlin in the job before last when I was um, the director of operations to deliberately try. It was a, it was a, policy decision to try and do a lot more with Germany. I think we felt that, we've mentioned before, the CGF, that's why I mentioned all those introductory things, you know, excluded from all of these was, you know, is Germany. The German constitution, but also the German strategic culture, actually prevented us doing a lot of things. Even contingency planning, you can't do. You know, the German military, the German MOD, is constitutionally prevented in doing any of that contingency planning, which talks to that culture. We are not going to be... You know, the, the culture is very much of um, shackles on the military until they are definitely removed by political authority. And um, in, in some cases, <laughs> it, all at once and in, in, in a big fell swoop like we've seen recently. I would like to get uh, into a, one more question on le UK leadership at the moment, because one example that I've seen uh, that I've seen recently is something like the Anglo-Swedish Treaty, which also leads us into questions about the uh, about the Jeff. Angela Merkel famously justified her 2008 decision to um, object to uh, Ukraine and Georgia's uh, immediate membership action plan into NATO by saying, uh, well, if we give them a membership action plan, what's to stop Russia from attacking them in the interim before they actually join? And it seems like with the Anglo-Swedish Treaty that the UK actually found a little bit of a, of a solution to exactly this kind of, of question, which I believe really uh, showed some leadership there. Um, what kind of, how do you think the Anglo-Swedish Treaty, and then further on into, into Jeff's, um, what kind of role might that uh, play to solve this question of what happens in the interim, certainly before Ukraine, for example, joins NATO? Well, yeah, Ukraine could join the Joint Expeditionary Force. Couldn't it? A suggestion we made at this think tank earlier this year. I think that would be quite a sensible thing to do because it would be a, um, a route into NATO without going through um, all those political considerations which turn into machinations and then trying to get... It, it, it's something that could be done within the current 10 um, countries, all of which are great supporters of Ukraine, all of which have done a huge amount... And you look at, you know, Estonia spent 1% of its GDP and what have you, at least, support, uh, supporting Ukraine. So, um, and they have been most vocal, not least here in this august institution, you know, of pointing out, you know, why this is about the security of us all, which is not as apparent to some of the other countries. Right? So I, th I think it would work. It would also, you, you asked, you know, the question before, that 400, why do we not, why do we get so little? But it's actually because everybody's growing their own rubbish rhododendron bush that, with a load of legacy elements on it. It's a, it's a most hideously inefficient way. Um, it would be, I think, a leap of strategic imagination for the UK to invest. And you're starting to see elements of this. And I'm sorry, I don't know enough about the detail. But you know, Charles Woodburn at BAES is talking about the uh, contracts they've got now and um, to build ammunition plants and stuff they're working with the Ukrainians on as well. Well, a, a leap, a, a genuine leap of the strategic imagination a year ago would have been to spend UK money uh, building um, plant, ammunition plant, 
in the Jeff forward near where it is needed, but then also push on the back of that standardization across the, across the Jeff. Just pick some things like if you can do it, one five five millimeter gun barrels, and therefore the ammunition uh, and way that goes with it, uh, and a way of replacing them. As everyone now, everyone now is an expert on artillery, aren't they? And it and it's not just the shells, but where do the barrels come from? They, hey, who knew they wore out? I think introduce another thought about those countries that really do think strategically. Before the Ukraine war, I remember chatting to an ex um, secretary of the U.S. Navy, political appointment, obviously for those listening in. Um, who'd gone Obama to Trump, and he was talking about the inability to produce frigate propulsion shafts, you know, prop shafts, and this is from the US. And he was saying we should, go to, we should be sort of friend-shoring with those countries that have got big industry that can do it, because when the one, this is before the pandemic, when the one plant, I think it's in Newport News somewhere, like my, I've got that wrong, uh, in, in America actually had a, a massive outbreak of flu, the plant had to shut down and their frigate refit program was not back in 18 month um, delays were, were, were put into the system. Now this is a really big, you know, the, the uh, superpower having to think now about the constraints or, or rather the, the, um, uh, those weaknesses in its, in its own system. So if the US is having to think about spread betting a bit and making sure that it's those nations that can really rely on in a crisis can help it, then surely all of us should be thinking that way. Uh, And it would have helped the UK. We should have spent, I think, argue, spend some of our money within the Joint Expeditionary Force. Because actually, if we standardise, we are showing a leadership that will actually benefit us all in the end. And there's an element, I mean, this is, uh, I think, underpins your thinking on team and values. There's a great phrase about uh, authority. The more authority to give away, the more you keep. Absolutely. This is team power. This is the idea behind team power. And it's also why we, we suggested earlier in the year in a paper you can find in the show notes that not only should Ukraine be included in the Jeff, but trying to get Germany and France into that or into a, a replica organization that includes those countries as well would be a smart thing to do for Europe. Would, would Germany be welcome in the Jeff? Do you think? But it comes a point where the Jeff would become NATO, and then what? What would be the point of it? I think I actually think it probably would be better if Germany thought through what it does in NATO, which is all that stuff about industrial base, railways, uh, and and then worked with the the countries around it to run standardisations on those sort of elements. And the the obvious axis then is with Poland and uh, what have you. And I think it will be better placed there. Otherwise, the, the Jeff would just become unwieldy in the end. And I, and I think those smaller countries who have the influence at the moment would start to feel that they were now... Right, interesting. Yeah, they were now peripheral. Mm. So I, I think that there is a place for this cascade of groupings, cascade of teams, if you like. Yes, there's the big NATO thing, but how can groups within, which is why um, the US, and I've hinted that, you know, I do quite like the way the US thinks about this because it has to think like the growing up in the room a heck of a lot of the time. Um, and I could justify that. Was massively impressed by the Jeff. I remember my opposite number coming over just, well, just before the pandemic, so it must have been February 20. He you know, turned around at one point and said, oh, the Jeff is a thing. And we sat there We sat there in Washington. We thought it was just another one of these conferences where the policy directors from a series of MODs go around and they sign off a communique, which is full of aspirations. And when he saw that, you know, I had a, 
headquarters deployed. Well, I had a squadron deployed to uh, Lebanon at the time, doing trade exercises there with it. But, but we had at least one officer from every one of the Jeff nations in that half headquarters that had gone overseas, and it was all about information age. We were tracking them back from London, all, all, all of that. So running a lot of what they were doing rearward. So it was a bit of an experimentation. It was a bit of an exercise. It was a bit of a this. But the, the, these Jeff officers were thoroughly embedded with it, and then we explained our exercise program. And there wasn't a UK program, and here's a little Jeff exercise here. It was all integrated. He was amazed but also delighted. said, I've got to go back and tell, tell the Pentagon what they're doing. So you know, the big powers are very happy to see you know, the, you know, these groupings. And I mean, your team's idea is a good one. And if you just think about it, um, all teams end up having sub-teams. And I hate, hate using sporting analogies for something as serious as warfare because it just tends to trivial, it can trivialise it if you're not careful. But there are always sub-teams within teams that have to work together well or the whole won't, whether it's the simple split of offensive or defensive. or But why not? And so what is the bit around continental Europe that has to work? I mean, I've done the Northern Europe. I've done, you know, I've talked about Western approaches, sea lines of communication, essentially air maritime infrastructure to keep everything flowing there. But there's a there's a much more grounded element in Central Europe that is railways and permissions and infrastructure and heavy plant and the stuff, the, the, the base machinery of high-end warfare. And... Germany could take a role in corralling that on 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 behalf on behalf of NATO. I mean, exactly. That was the reasoning that was behind us thinking of when the question of German leadership and what kind of power Germany should be. That's what prompted us to think of team power. Actually, that was the first thing as the the facilitator, the the, the water carrier for others in a way, um, which would I think speak to some of Germany's own political needs too. A lot of great insights from Edward there. Thank you very much to him for joining us. Uh, He also helped make clear how big some of the tasks of future security cooperation between the UK and Germany are, but also in Europe more generally. But as we're going to hear over the next few weeks, especially as we check in with both Ottawa and Washington, the Berlin-London relationship is an important, if strained one right now, due to outlooks on NATO as well. Uh, and Ukraine being a part of NATO. We saw uh, this kind of another example uh, of this, what I like to call mutually reinforcing dysfunctionality between uh, Germany and the US, Olaf Scholz and uh, Joe Biden uh, being uh, afraid of escalation with Russia. And this is a reason why they want to put the brakes on accession of uh, Ukraine to NATO or a plan to do so in the future. And then uh, France and the UK and up being uh, more uh, the two that are in favor of it or leaning in favor of it, which is an interesting reversal of of what tends to be European uh, and transatlantic uh, dynamics uh, there. Uh, Is there any way to bridge this gap, Ben? What do you think? Well, Aaron, I think it relates to a lot of the conversations we've been having for a long time on this show. What we've talked about in both of our UK episodes is the need for the UK and Germany to play better as a team. And that applies to other allies as well, of course. Working with France would make a big difference on this. For that, we need to identify uh, the best roles we can play in that team, and there's certainly a division of labor to be had. But everyone also needs to step up and play their part too. In order for that to happen, we're going to have to have a clearer common strategic vision. We're going to have to get those team players' noses pointing in the right, in the same direction as each other. So we're all actually heading for the same goal. And a bit more of an honest conversation about that between the various European powers that takes 
um, consideration of the emerging situation in the US without alienating the US. There's no need for autonomy from the US if it's still a stellar ally and heading in the right direction. But we need to be able to do more for ourselves regardless. And uh, the best way actually to keep the US on board is to do that, is to make the case saying, look, we're holding up our end of that bigger team bargain there. So we need some serious grown-up strategic thinking. And you'll also find a link in the show notes to our recent take on why, for example, Germany needs a grand strategic approach. But there's certainly something that could be better coordinated with allies like the UK on that as well. And as you mentioned, even if Biden uh, actually does win this upcoming election, we're still going to be facing some of the same problems. And I would imagine uh, one of those big examples would be a U.S. that is a bit more focused on uh, the Indo-Pacific. And we might well ask, well, what precisely does uh, the U.S. uh, expect us to do as a member of the team if uh, the rubber meets the road in the Taiwan Strait and there is an escalation of of, uh, of tensions or even a full-blown conflict uh, there. And the answer might really well be um, manage our own security better and manage our own neighborhood. Um, and that really is actually uh, the best contribution we could actually make to the team in order to free resources up for the U.S. to be able to handle that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's doing that and it's helping to contribute to protect the global commons as we're seeing with what's happening now in the um in in the Middle East. But certainly holding up our own end of that bargain is is hundred percent on point there, Aaron. The important thing to remember about this is that people talk about the pivot to the Indo-Pacific. It's difficult to pivot if 70% of your forces are already committed there. That's something not a lot of people think about in Europe. And if that's going to be happening even more, then what does it say about how we secure ourselves in Europe? So part of that strategic conversation is working out how we play as part of that bigger team, what's our role, how we pull our weight. The other part is saying, what do we need to secure ourselves? What are those capabilities? When do we need them by and how do we get them? And that runs the full spectrum from a nuclear deterrent all the way down to drones and ammunition. So that's why we need to be putting that in its strategic context, setting the goal, the objective, set the strategy to achieve it, work out how to do that with partners, and then go about delivering it. That's the way we'll make ourselves safe. But of course, the easiest way to make that easier for ourselves is to support Ukraine to win, first and foremost. That deters the most obvious threat we have. And I think it's important to keep that in mind throughout the conversations we have. Absolutely. And our Ukrainian victory, as we've uh, also mentioned in previous episodes, uh, also is, number one, the right thing to do, morally speaking, but also is, uh, we must also say, a tremendous return on investment uh, in our own security as well. That's right. If you don't want to have to get to 4.5% of spending on GDP, let alone 2.5%, then... Do the, choose the cost-effective option and support Ukraine to win. That is all for this week's episode of Berlin Side Out. Thank you to our team at DJAP and to all of our guests this week for joining us. Uh, remember to check the show notes for more information about them and uh, also the key pieces that we've been referring to in our, our discussion, the key background readings, if you'd like to learn more. We hope you'll join us for the rest of our season as we jump the pond for transatlantic check-ins that I hope you're anticipating by now, given how much we've been talking about them. Uh, First with my home country in Canada and of course uh, the US as this election year kicks off there. For now though, until next time from Berlin, Auf Wiedersehen, Cheerio and Tschüss.